Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Matt Bronger. Matt is from Portland, went to theater school in New York City, but learned how to be a comedian in Chicago. He got his first big break on Mad TV, but you more likely have seen him on a variety of other TV shows, including Up All Night, United States of Terra, Happy Endings, and At Midnight. He talks to me about growing up in his 40s and yet still acting like a big dumb animal, which was the name of his Netflix special that came out in early 2015. So let's get to it. So Matt Bronger, hello. Welcome, welcome back to the Bell House. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, is this the first time you've been here since taping your Netflix special? I was trying to think about that to, uh, earlier today. Um, I don't. I for some reason nagging me that I'm not. You know what? I think I did. Uh, I did risk here since mm-hmm. uh, Kevin Allison's uh, show. Okay. And uh, that was during, what was that for? That was for the Podfest. Podfest. I okay. was in Podfest, and I just did, I just told a story. So, yeah, but that's that's the last time uh, since the taping I was here. All know? right. Uh-huh. So it wasn't actually like stand-up stand-up. It was just more <laughs> like a, a weird sex story. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you felt like a big, dumb animal? Oh, uh, today. Anytime I'm on a plane, I'm always bumping into everything. Uh, and, and that thing of, you know, if I have an early flight, if I have an early flight, I'll get, I'll get the window seat, you know, I'll request the window seat. If I have a later flight, I'll get the aisle mm-hmm. and the window seat just so I can, you know, pass out, just go right. to sleep because it's early in the morning. Private but then time. you wake up, private time, but then you wake up like three hours later and have to, you know, piss like a racing horse. And then you're just like, oh, can I get by you? You know, it's that thing of, right. you know climbing over people that are older or making them get out in the aisle. So, And you haven't, even with all of your road travels over the years, figured out a graceful way to... I'm not bad at it. I'm not bad. But there, there is that thing where you forget you have a backpack on and just clock mm-hmm. someone across the head and kind of that kind of thing. And okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it just, it, it just happens uh, every once in a while. It just comes with the size, you know. You know. That, that special, though, was a lot about you... Growing up, yeah, oh, and for sure, becoming mature. Mm-hmm. What was the last moment of immaturity for you where you said, Okay, I'm at a turning point where I'm either going to be a child for <laughs> the rest of my life, yeah, or I'm have, have to be an adult? I think the, I think the, the, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a turning point. It was, I was in, but it was a night of, oh, What are you doing, man? I was in, I did this just at this portion of this tour I'm on, uh, the, my Ding Donger tour, and I was in Washington State. So I started in Bellingham, then I had a night off in Seattle, then I went to Tacoma for three days, then I went to Spokane. And my night off in Seattle, like I love Seattle. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go eat out, have a nice meal at a bar and a nice restaurant, at the bar and a nice restaurant, and maybe have a couple drinks. And ended up just bar hopping all over Capitol Hill and just drinking way too fast. And I didn't like fall down or make a fool of myself. But by like 10.30 p.m., I was like, I'm going back to my room. And I remember just sitting there and going... Why did you drink so? Why did you drink so much and so fast? And it's all because I was alone. Okay, you know it's that thing of of you know going out and having a couple of drinks by yourself is I think fine. But when it's like I'm gonna make a night of this and you don't have anyone to right. talk to, you tend to just strike up weird conversations with random people out of uh, uh, a strange 
uh, uh, boozy desperation. That's kind where of. drinking buddies comes from. It, absolutely, absolutely. So it wasn't wasn't a turning point, but it was like, ah, yeah, just don't do that. Don't do that again. You know, go go out and have your own fun, but don't feel the need to just get a crazy buzz early. You know what I mean? When you were a child in Portland, Oregon, yeah, what did you imagine forty would be like? Probably, if you ask me, uh, lame. Uh, probably a wife and kids or divorced or something. Um, I didn't. I'm never someone who visualized the future all that well. But I think that's what kind of comes with maturity. I mean, you right. mentioned how the special was about growing up. I certainly now look into the future and go, okay, what will I be at this age? What will I do at this right. age? What do I need to change to make it to that age? That kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember like my girlfriend and I were laughing about that. How sh- we both remember our parents turning 40. We remember like, uh, you know, little parties with hats that say over the hill. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I remember, Again. I remember new- that newspapers, which were a thing. Yes. Used to have, I remember those. They used to have classified ads and people would put ads in the paper that said, Lordy, Lordy, look who's 40. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's like, it sounds like I'm, I'm being, uh, weirdly delusional, but I do think that it's like, it's a little different now with longer life expectancy right. and also and also people kind of not necessarily throwing out the rule book but making additions to it it's that kind of thing where i remember uh uh greg proops had a great uh statement on i believe he was on i forget what podcast but he was talking about how you have to it's up to you to keep your audience young and he's like you know I, I don't want to be like Jackie Gleason only playing for other 80 year olds. I, I want right. people to be of all ages enjoying my stuff. And that's, and you, you look back when you're a kid, if you took an age, you're like, Oh, this person's 40 person's 41. You'd be like, Oh, lame. But then you'd, you'd see some comic or an actor or a performer, you name it and be like, Oh, that person's really cool. And you wouldn't even think about their age. You don't care. And not even cool is the wrong term, but like, Oh, I really like that person. And then you find out their age and you're like, Oh yeah. 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 Or, you know, it doesn't even come into play, you know? I mean, when I was a kid, I was the biggest George Carlin fan ever. Like, still am, but I never I never gave a crap how old he was. Do you know what I mean? Right. So I think I think it comes down to what's, you know, what's what's most important to you. Yeah, look, if you're 40 and you still live at home, there are some changes to be made immediately, <laughs> I think. You know, the current financial crisis notwithstanding, right. maybe. But there, there are, I think there's, there's a lot more acceptance of people making their own road that makes any sense? Like, I'll make fun of myself all the time. I don't want to be that person who's just like, look, it's fine. doesn't matter. You know, of course, it kind of messes with me a little yeah. bit, you know, that I haven't been married yet and I, I don't have any kids. But at the same time, you kind of have to not give a crap because it's your life. Do you know what I mean? Right. And like you were saying, the, the generational expectations have changed. The, the prime example I always go to in my own head is it's not comedy per se, but the karate kid. <laughs> because Ralph Macchio is now older than Pat Morita was when he played Mr. Miyagi. Oh, my God. That's fascinating. But when Karate Kid came out, you thought Mr. Miyagi was this ancient yes. person, and he wasn't. No, he, was like, he wasn't. <laughs> he was early 50s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so funny. But early 50s in 1984 was old. Old. Oh, yeah. I just read uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. I always liked the movie as a kid, and I liked that idea of a carnival coming to town and just stealing people's souls. And it's yeah, so I was freaked out by that. Really freaky. The book is a little more metaphorical and weird, um, but... Uh, the, the main character, the well, one of the main characters is the dad, who's a janitor, 
who is 54 now, and he had his son when he was 40. And this book came out in the 60s. And he's just like, oh, my God. And he's so, he's so embarrassed because right. he can't he's keep up old, with his kid. He's the old dad. And he's a janitor. Yeah, he's the old dad. And uh, and that's how they the the the, the illustrated man the the um, the ringleader like plays on his insecurities oh. like you're so old you're gonna die before he finds a, a wife you know that kind of stuff and it's just I remember reading that passage it's just, the, the sentence was like um, he he didn't have a child till he was forty forty there's like a second <laughs> second <laughs> sentence with an exclamation Can mark you believe it holy shit how did his heart not give out during sex and and now here we are too. Two single men in our 40s without kids. Right, right. Uh, yeah. well, so, okay, so you pictured, when you were a kid in Portland, you pictured yourself with a wife and kids. Did you picture Maybe. yourself as a, as a touring, headlining comedian with TV credits? I didn't know. I, you know, when you're, I was just in, like, a, uh, I was really into acting. I was really into doing plays and, How you know, young? hopefully doing movies. Oh, since I was, like, 10. Okay. Yeah, I was always, always taking acting classes and, um, you know, doing little productions. I did a lot, a lot of weird... Uh, Portland um, <laughs> forced multiculturalism, uh, artistic kind of. I say forced. Forced is the wrong term. They just put a bunch of us kids together and write mm. a show around us. So when stuff. they say the and dream of the 90s is alive in Portland, even back in the 90s, it was even back in the 80s. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> for, oh, always, always, because it's just it's such. It's such a white place, much less now, mm-hmm. so now, but such a white place that's always been very self-conscious about its whiteness and okay. just over-the-top politi- politi- excuse me, political correctness, you know, which I think is better than just not caring. But at the same time, there's a lot of, oh, wait a minute. Are we doing the right thing? Am I offending someone? You know, that kind of thing. Right, it, sensitive. It, overly sensitive. Overly sensitive. Think about any time a, a comedian makes a joke, say, about, a, about black people in general, and there's one black person person in the room and all white heads turn to him or her to see if they're allowed to laugh Approval. it was like that like a citywide thing in, in a lot of ways so when you were doing these theater productions in early adolescence was yeah it, was that your idea was that your parents no idea? it was just kind Who, of how? i'd find out about it and be like oh i want to do this um and what, what inspired that even just at that age it be, being an attention whore really okay. and, and just and i really liked i really liked the give and take of being in plays and i was kind of the guy who you know, not to toot my own horn, but I was kind of the guy who, if someone dropped a line, I would make something up. You know, like I was always, because it was that thing of, well, Jesus, someone's got to say something here. Like I remember doing a, I remember doing a a, a, a one act play, like a weird farce, like a French farce. We all had the like the white wigs and mm-hmm. those pants that snap up the sides, and yeah, and the little white shoes. And my pants came unsnapped because I tripped over a chair. It was like a pratfall. And I came back up, and the guy was like, do we have a deal? And I was like, before I make this deal, my pants have become unsnapped. I must re-snap them. And I got a huge reaction because it was everyone's like, oh, he just pulled that out of his ass. You know, his pants were about to fall off. And And he mentioned it. Yes. So, and like, I I remember really digging that fact and, and loving the fact that, like, my other actors were like, Oh, I'm never. I never get freaked out when I'm out there with Bronger because I know he'll save it. Like if I drop something or whatever. Um, so it, I just, I just, and I just like performing for a live audience. I, I always liked comedy. I think my senior year in high school, I found an open mic and tried to write a set, and it was so bad, and I didn't do was it. Was that at Harvey's or? No, else? it was at the Silver Dollar Saloon, which is on Northwest Twenty Third, I think, in Portland. Is that a the, food truck now? <laughs> they probably have a food truck out front. I'm sure. Yeah, That's my my last Selling. my last memory of yeah. modern Portland is food trucks. So many, 
And, oh, actually, you know what? In Portland, it's food carts. Oh. Food carts. Okay. That just kind of stay that's, there because they'll that's have... old school. They'll have, yeah, they'll have uh, these little gravel-strewn parking lots. Oh, right. The whole parking lot was yeah. taken over. By yeah, there's carts. there's cart lots everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay, so you did the open mic, and then you dropped comedy for a while? I know you studied No, I didn't even do the open mic. I just wrote this set out, and I just remember looking back on it and going, oh, this is so bad. I never did it. Uh, okay. I went to college. And you studied theater in college. Th- uh-huh, and then I went to Chicago after that. Why did you pick Chicago? I had a friend who lived there who was, uh, I went to, I grew up with her, and her family, she's a family of actors. Okay. Her parents, uh, her, I think her sister was the only one who wasn't. And she just said, you know, you should come out to Chicago because there's a ton of black box theaters. The Steppenwolf's is out here. And I went out, and I kind of made a half-hearted attempt to do theater there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't really take the audition process seriously. And, you know, I mean, I was kind of just having fun in my early 20s. But then the restaurant I worked at, the other, uh, a bunch of the other waiters were at Second City and, and I.O. And we're like, oh, you should go take classes. So I started taking classes at I.O. and did levels one through five and got on an improv team and just started dabbling in stand-up on the side. Was the improv team, was that Harold-based? Yes. Was it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were called the Shawning. And that was because like, there's five of the seven members were named Sean or something like that. Oh, yeah. that's, that's pretty. I mean, it's, it's a sweet. good improv team name, I mean, the Shawning. It, the more Shawns you can have on, an, on, a, on a troupe, the better. It I is say. the better, yeah. I well, say. we not only had Shawns, we had a Dishawn as well. Oh, wow. So, you know, yeah. And how many of them are still performing today? Um, one... I forget her name, damn it, but she... Not a Sean. No. She is... She was the, <laughs> one of the non-Shans. She was... The non uh, also a good name for a troop. That is a good one. Uh, she was uh, She was at Boom Chicago in Amsterdam okay. for a long time, and she's, she's still, she still does it. She's one of those people that's been doing it a long time and is like, you know, uh, uh, a reliable performer, you okay. know? I forget her name, though. But, yeah, this was back in, like, 98, okay. something like that. Yeah. And then... What was the first impulse to do stand-up for you? Uh, I went with a friend of mine. I, I always wanted to try it. My friend who I waited tables with, he did stand-up and was like, oh, you're funny. You should do it. And so I went with him to a show and that he was on. Mm-hmm. And this woman who was booking the show said, I was about to pay my $5 cover fee. She said, oh, you're funny, I heard. Do you want to do, excuse me, do you want to do a set? Um, you'll, uh, like, I don't have anything prepared. And she goes, well, you get in free and you get free two free drinks. I was like, it's a deal. So I just sat at the bar and like wrote down some funny stuff. Okay. And the worst thing happened for your first time doing stand-up uh, ever, which is I killed. Like all my friends in the audience, I just destroyed. And then the next couple of times, I did okay or ate it. You know, you have that feeling where you're like, right. I should have been doing this all along. I'm so good at this. And it's like, <laughs> I'm a not, natural. You're not good. You have uh, false read, uh, alcoholically buzzed confidence. Uh, all your friends in the right, audience. The first time, right? The audience is more th- sympathetic. Oh yeah, you're, you're, if you're they're your friends too. You're relaxed, which is great, but you're maybe too relaxed. You know, yeah. So that's but. whenever I'm at whenever I'm accidentally at a bringer show. Ha! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I I look at the the performers and I think, oh, they're getting such false positive feedback because yes. it's a bringer show, so they've brought all these people from work, totally, or their family, and they're. So, oh, Uber supportive, right? Yeah, it would because they are just looking for anything to laugh at. When you want it, want to be a much more, uh, uh, I would say, realistic relationship. Well, the audience is as important as the comedian, obviously, but it's kind of got to be a, uh, 
a, a little give and take. They, the audience has to allow room for the person to fail. Like sometimes when a uh, comedian is funny is when he or she just drops a, 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 a bomb, like just takes a crap, like a, a terrible joke, and then right. makes fun of that joke. You know what I mean? Johnny Carson made his the back end of his living off of that in the monologue where... Oh, really? Yeah, a, yeah, half of his monologue jokes on the, oh, yeah, yeah. the later years oh, of the right. Tonight Show would yes. be awful. And then he'd just make fun of or, how or, awful it was. Or Letterman. He'll do yeah. a joke that obviously only he liked, and then he would just say the tagline over and over through the rest of the Where, monologue. Oh, memories of those days of yeah. late night TV. I miss it. I miss <laughs> it. So after that first week where it goes great and then you eat it, mm-hmm. how, how soon did you get back? Pretty, back pretty soon. I had a friend uh, named, Bic, Mick Bet- named Mick Betancourt. Who's okay. a, uh, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, you know Mick? He uh, was a guy who was like, oh, you should just keep doing this because you could eventually do this for a living. I work with a lot of comics, and I would just go up his, at his show almost every Sunday and just... I think I did like a, a different, I tried to do a different set every time. So I mm-hmm. took a lot of chances. And there also was the, the famous Lion's Den in Chicago that I, I met like most of my Chicago comedy friends now where you just never knew who was going to show up. And it was like 30 comics, everyone doing five minutes. And it was just real communal, really supportive thing where it'd be like, oh, can you watch? I'm, I'm trying to this new stuff, you know. But you, also, you always had this audience that you didn't know. There were different people every single week. So between that Sunday and that Monday every week and then a couple things in between, we kind of, you know, it was, it was back in the burgeoning time of the quote-unquote alternative scene. And right. to us, we didn't even think that was a term. We just kind of didn't want to play the local comedy club. We didn't want to go by those rules because it was right. just like a fun thing. And everyone, everyone had their favorites. I mean, everyone was like a, a not-so-closeted Mitch Hedberg fan or, or um, you know, everyone from Joan Rivers to Chris Rock to whatever. And we, it was this kind of, you know, you'd kind of nerd out about bits you loved. And everybody had favorite jokes of each other's that we'd quote to each other. Who you did know? you nerd out on back then? Oh, well, we had a local guy who now writes on a ton of stuff and just flits in and out of the industry named Dwayne Kennedy, who was oh, kind of yeah, like... Dwayne. Dwayne was like our god. He was like our Elvis that was like just effortlessly hilarious. I mean, I could probably do 20 minutes of his stuff from back in those days, I remember word s- for word. I remember the first time I saw him was at Aspen <coughs> in 2002. He was part of... They didn't, yeah. they didn't call it New Faces at the HBO Festival. Right. They just called it Stand-Up Showcase. But uh-huh, yeah. I remember he won the award for the best mm-hmm. of, the, of the new stand-ups. Of course. Year. Yeah, I remember... We didn't, I didn't even know how, how well he'd done without caring in the business when I was like still starting out. And we're just out loud to no one, just being like, oh, man, I wish I could get a development deal. And he heard me and kind of chuckled and was like, I've had five, man. And I was like, what? How much? What? And he was just that guy who would just do jokes. And then you'd go, we go to Kingston Mines, this blues place, and go eat ribs. Or like, you know, he, but he was always this really funny, supportive guy that really didn't give a crap about whatever. I mean, last job I know he had was he was on... Uh, totally biased with Kamal right. Bell, and uh, you know I'm friends with like the whole writing staff. And who was telling me? Uh, Nato Green, who wrote on that show, was saying how people would be laughing so hard in his office they'd crawl out, like they'd crawl out on the because they couldn't stand up. <laughs> Just this like effortlessly hilarious guy. When was the first time you realized that that you could be that kind of comedian potentially? I mean, I I, I had this thing where I, near the end of my Chicago run. I was, you know, kind of a, a 
<laughs> kind of a big deal. Like I was like I was, you know, pretty popular with other comedians, and I was always having great sets. And then I came out to L.A. and had a couple good sets, and then just started second guessing myself. So I had about had about two years of kind of floundering a little bit. But I think that's healthy. I think that's you need to kind of, you know, get uh, re in tune with yourself and re in tune with you're not giving a, a crap. You know what I mean? Were you um, part of the Blurds? They came crew? after me, but I did do okay. Blurds videos okay. post that. I mean, I knew those couple of those guys before. Um, I was kind of the f- the first rollout of the Chicago crew, which okay. would be like Canaan uh, and me, Pete Holmes, and uh, and Kamel. And then after us came like T.J. Miller and Mike Bridenstine. And so Pete and Kamel moved to New York, and yeah. you and Kyle moved to L.A. Uh-huh. Was there a conscious... Like I, where I, you guys were all sitting around and going, well, where do we go? Yeah. Or? Well, no, we never decided together. I, I just was like, I've been in Ch- Chicago for six years, and I'm, I'm not doing anything interesting. I'm just waiting tables. I should just go. And, you know, I don't want to go play the clubs in the suburbs. Like, and John Roy, who was a part of my crew, mm-hmm. he was doing a lot of that. He was the first guy who played clubs that were was in the in the gang. Uh, but. I just, I just knew I wanted to do film. I wanted to do, do television, or you know, I wanted to get those avenues. And I didn't think those avenues were as clear if you lived in New York. Now they are w- much more. Right. Now it doesn't matter it, whether which one you live in it as much. Um, but um, uh, back then, yeah, you you definitely did. Is he okay? Do you want to pause it real quick? So John Roy was doing the cl- the club circuit. Yeah, you and I. I you didn't okay, do any road work. No, I. My first road gig was the weekend after after September 11th, and that's a that's a, it was a horrific weekend with me, Mick, and I. I I featured. He headlined, and what we didn't club even think about. We didn't even think about. Uh, it's now gone. It was like a funny bones way out in the suburbs, and uh, we didn't even think about why the feature and the headliner both canceled. <laughs> didn't cross our minds. We just thought, hey, we got a gig. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, we had so-so sets, and I just remember going, what am I, what are we doing? This is way too soon to be, you know, you remember the whole, the whole nation yeah. was in horrific mourning. There was a period where magazine covers in the early... Yeah. Uh, it's fine. It's <laughs> fine. You have to pause it a couple times. It's fine. <laughs> you know. We're, People we just understand. have to p- hit the pause button on life, yeah. really. So you, sometimes you just have to. And especially at 9-11, people were talking <laughs> about hitting the pause button on comedy. Yeah, correct. And, and now we're back. Now we're back. Here we are. So you did America's strong again. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so if that's your road experience, you're like, no, no. Well, and it wasn't even just that. It was also like you'd ha- I didn't have a car. So, okay. you so know, you the, you'd have a car. You couldn't go play those clubs. And you could do Central maybe. Central Illinois. Or I'd go do five, ten-minute sets at Zany's in Old Town sometimes. Right. Uh, but but that's different from doing the Midwest. Y- well, runs. it's different than doing like, uh, you know, if I would have stayed in Chicago and wanted to do comedy and make a living at it, I would have had to buy a car and just play these Midwest runs. Right. Whereas I kind of wanted to jump over that, hopefully do well, and then you know come back and headline these clubs. Um, and I think I think it just came down to with with Pete and Kamel, even though we're all doing all of it now. I was more of a person who definitely had a focus on on acting as well as stand-up, even back then, whereas they were just straight-up stand-ups. And, like, you know, if you do, I tell people, if you want to just get really great at stand-up, New York is the place because you can get up, like, three, four, five times a night, you know? Uh, so when you moved to L.A., what was, what was the first thing you did as part of your game plan? Hmm. 
Um, got a day job, you know, that's really, that's, that's, I, it's that thing you, you, I have friends that, you know, got, uh, uh, jobs on shows right off the plane and stuff like that. But that is extremely rare. And I had no heat on me at all. I had no, you know, this was no Twitter account, no Twitter. There was no Twitter back then. There was no YouTube. No, it was, it was, it was hard to get heat on you in a, in a, in a non coastal town. Uh, not being coastal town. So yeah, I was just like got a day job and um and then Kyle came out a month after I did and we got a place together and uh just tried to go up as often as we could and met with a great deal of disappointment. But you know, after a couple of years, what it started. Was, what was the first out. place that uh, that gave you a break in L.A.? Um, I think the the first time I, I hosted at the Improv. Yeah, that two things: hosting at the Improv, uh, this big Chicago show, and then. Uh, 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 doing a set at um, what was then called Comedy Death Ray. Okay. You know, which became Comedy Bang Bang right. and then turned into a TV show and now long, no, now it's no longer a stand-up show. And <laughs> no. Yeah. And that was before you did New Faces? Uh, yeah, I didn't do New Faces. I got to L.A. in 2003. I did New Faces oh, so in 2007. Were, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's about four years of, of, uh, of struggling, but it was healthy. And what was the day job? Uh, I had a couple. I was a PA... Uh, so so you're in the business. Years. In the business, but like for a reality show company, okay. like nothing I wanted to rise in the ranks into. <laughs> um, and uh, I was, the and then I was a, I did catering, I did a lot of catering. I used to have a thing where I drive to people's houses and bartend to rich people's parties. Like part, party down. Like party down. That was my life. I had to wear a shirt and tie, not a tux mm-hmm. shirt and bow tie, but very, very similar. Did you audition for Party Down at all? Did you get to No, I didn't. I didn't. Oh. I remember watching it and going like, oh, okay, that's right. No, wait, that's <laughs> wrong. No, we didn't do that. Um, and then, then the last thing, I was a closed captioner for the hearing impaired. Okay. Yeah. That's Which a, Kyle and I both did that job for that's years. That's a good day job. That was a good one. That was a good it's, company. It's low profile. Totally. Probably good income. Mm-hmm, not bad. Health insurance. Oh, health insurance. Health insurance. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of tedium. It was, it, it, I would compare it to it's just like editing. If you ever do any film editing, it's a lot like that. Right. A lot of stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. A lot of that. You know. What was the last day at that day job? When did you decide? Oh, I I can give this up. It, uh, 2008, when I did Letterman and booked Mad TV, okay. is when I, I I actually you know what you know what no it wasn't I was it was earlier 2008 before I booked Mad because I started I just put together I had some savings and I put together enough road gigs. To cover everything, and I was like, "All right, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna try it." Okay. So I quit, and and I'm still on really good terms with that company and everybody that works there because they were great. Because I could leave for auditions and just make up the time on the weekends, which was just invaluable, you know, in terms of uh, being in the biz. It didn't have to be a nine to five. No, no, it was. I could, I could, I, as long as I gave enough advance, I just okay. send an email like, "I need this time to this time off." And what what kind of road work were you doing then? None. Like almost but none. you said you lined up road work. Yes, I, I after post new faces, mm-hmm. I got enough work because I had. Was a, as a I had a manager or? then, and then I got an, and I got an agent out of that. Okay. So, oh here I gotta okay. introduce. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, so you started getting road work after Montreal. Basically, yeah. Uh, before then, I'd done little bits here and there. We uh, little runs we'd put together sometimes, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like official where okay. you were. I started out just. I did a couple feature spots, and I did my first headlining spot in a club was at the Laugh Stop in Houston, which I think is gone now. I but that know. was 
that was maybe the big. That was a very popular club at the time. Yeah, huge. I, I, it was like early two thousand nine, okay. and then from there, then I just kind of was was your kind of bargain basement headliner. Now we hear know? all sorts of stories about auditions for Saturday Night Live, but mm. I have no idea what the audition process for Mad TV. It was, was weird. Like. I, you know, I I would. I mean, I mean, I know. I tested and so did Eric Andre, and I was just <laughs> baffled that I got it and he didn't. And I think it was just you'll you'll never believe this, but I think he was too weird for them, you know. Like I think, but his jokes I thought were like really funny and strange. Right. Uh, but uh, and I remember I brought that up to him recently, and he was like, "Oh, why are you gonna bring that up? Like it still hurts him." I'm like, "You have your own show, man. It doesn't matter." I was on Mad TV for half a season; it got canceled. <laughs> um, but it was it was a lot of people from Groundlings and UCB and IO and you name it, and then me, uh, and Eric, who were stand-ups. Right. And these people would be like, so. Where you, what theater are you guys with? And we're like, we're not with it. What? What does that mean? You know? Uh, and it, I just remember the, the audition. I went in like six or seven times, and every time there were less and less people in the audition room. And there was um, there were uh, uh, two casting people that they just really liked me. And they liked um, my uh, style and everything. And they just said, well, you got to bring in. So I made up some characters, and I made up some celebrities to do impressions of and um, and just – did those things and they coached me through them so like oh come back again mm-hmm. we'll have an executive here uh try it like this and i remember the day i t- I, I you know you do what's called testing where you go in for the network executives mm-hmm. in this weird kind of little theater room and i'd hurt my i'd fallen in my apartment and hurt my knee and so i was on crutches so i came in the room on crutches and they all just started laughing like oh <laughs> here we go and i'm like what am i gonna do like a, a joke a about being crippled like that's not funny <laughs> They thought you were already in yeah. character. Yeah, exactly. But I was like, no. And I kind of put the crutches down and stood on one leg and mm-hmm. did all my characters. Um, and then I went to the Nebraska Comedy Festival. Okay, the Great American yes, Comedy that's Festival. It. And you play in this great big theater. And I was still on crutches. And I went on stage in my crutches and got a laugh. And I'm like, what is wrong with these human beings that think I'm just going to fall you know my red buttons so like <laughs> i got off i got off stage and i got a phone call that said oh yeah you got mad tv and i was like wow and i was like hey guess what and i wanted to tell people but i was like is this dickish because you know cause we went, all the comedians right. all 40 of or something went to a bar and hey bronger got mad tv and they're all like oh great you know? <laughs> the thing of well at least i'm on crutches guys you know <laughs> but yeah it was a weird weird time it was cool though uh I was I last thing I'm, I was lucky I wasn't working that day when they uh, when they canceled the show, the executives called everybody in on my day off. And so how did you find out? Eric Price, who was on the who was he was in, also the new the last yeah, new hire. He was one of the two white dudes on the cast me, with me and him, and he called me and was like, oh, "Dude, guess what?" And I was just like, "Well," and I was like, "I mean, when Fox only ordered half a season, mm-hmm. I feel like the writing was on the wall." So, you know. Well, and Fox has since then tried throwing a lot of stuff mm-hmm. at the wall for that yeah. that late night Saturday totally time slot. Yeah, I mean it's it's and I think that that animation domination thing. A lot of my friends work on that, and that's funny. But they, uh, it's it's. I think it, all it came down to is Mad TV was just too expensive. Mm. It wasn't like uh, it never reached the iconography of of Saturday Night Live. You know, so it's like a Saturday Night Live is like a national right. institution, like a, a treasure. Even though Key and Peele now, yeah, are huge and huge, but they, you know, they kind of refined it into what their vision of it right. was. And it's it's the thing I love about that show is it's just always the two of them. It's always they'll have other people in the scene, but it's always about the dynamic of two human beings. 
which I think is really unique in terms of sketch shows. Like, you've never seen a sketch show. You see sketch shows where it's like, here's one person's vision, like uh, Chappelle show or Amy Schumer show. Key and Peele is always two guys, you know, that are interacting in whatever scene as different characters, you know. So w- did you feel like you were on the show sh- a short enough time that you didn't get emotionally invested in it? And It just was like, can, well, that was, that was fun. It was disappointing because, you know, from there I had projects that would get to, like, the pilot stage and then wouldn't get picked up. Right, you I'd had go. one with Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I did with Kyle Kinane. Uh We did two pilots for, for the same show. But this was during the time. It was, like, the first time, well, we just picked up uh, 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 Kroll Show and Key and & Peele. And so we don't have money to pick up yours but can you do another pilot for it and we're like okay and then the next round of pilots oh we're picking up it's either you picking up uh we're picking up jeselnik show and amy schumer show yeah and it's just i mean it's it's just that's how the cards fall you know i mean if my thing is if you're not in this business for the long haul you should probably get out because you're going to have a lot of disappointments and it's getting something off the ground very soon is akin to winning like five five lotteries um and it, it, I think it was Robin Williams said, you have to be prepared for luck. So I feel like I was prepared for luck. Kyle's prepared for luck. We just weren't lucky then, but we've gotten lucky other ways. Right. You know, It's just that thing. I can't be right. mad Kyle's at them. for doing voiceovers for Comedy Central and other right. things. And you've been in a, in a ton of different series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I have stuff in development now. I have a digital series coming out on Comedy Central probably early next year. It's all shot and edited. Um, I have a script uh, uh, over at... Um, Showtime that I wrote with my cousin uh, that we're developing, and um, I have a little recurring role. I don't know if I can talk about that, but anyway, on a, on a, on a, net, on a network show, on a, okay. on, a, on a drama, an hour drama, which is weird. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's just... You Did you have to audition for that? No, that one they just they offered me. Yeah, that was cool. Um, it was one of those things where you're kind of like the, the comic relief at a, okay. at a, in, a, in, a, in a serious world. Kind of thing. How to get away with murder <laughs> of Kurt? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, of I'm Yeah, what's I'm trying to think of what's the most dark? <laughs> yeah, like I'm the wacky guy on the wire. No, <laughs> it's coming back. Well, it is. And the, I'm that guy who's constantly spilling coffee on himself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you ruined the steak out again, <laughs> Markowitz. Uh, oh, I like I like that we we have this tease where we don't know you're going to be. In well, a, it's it's in it's a network drama. But we're not sure we can tell people. Yeah, no, it's a sh- it's a show that's coming back for it, an- I forget mm-hmm. if it's a second or a third season, but okay. it's it's just this kind of random, cool world. Um, but well, my point is, you you have you just can't ever stop creating, you know, because right. if you, it's almost like those people that are like, boy, I can't wait to book a network show so I can just stop doing stand up forever. It's like, well, did you do it to get that show, or did you do it because you love it? And I'm not saying someone has to keep doing... Like, I know, I get why Steve Martin stopped. Totally understand. Right. You know, he's playing stadiums and was tired of it. It was getting too big. He couldn't go back to, like, the small coffee houses he loved to do. Right. You know? I, I love the fact that I just do these small venues. And, you know, you see people playing giant stadiums. And that's great. But at the same time, it's just like, hmm. I kind of, I kind of like the intimacy. I like not having my face on a giant screen. You know? It's, just, it's weird if I'm... It's weird if I'm not belting out jumping jack flash or something <laughs> what's the what's the last best advice you've received to help you kind of maintain your serenity and stability as you plow forward and keep creating hmm. advice um oh, let's see let's see i i have something that i've always said to myself 
that sounds pessimistic, but mm-hmm. it kind of keeps me going that life is just all about improving your problems. Like you're always going to have problems. Just try to make them better problems than what you had before. So even if I'm dealing with something that's annoying, I go, well, at least I don't have, I'm not trying to get someone to pick up my Monday morning shift at the, at the restaurant. Do you know what I mean? Right. Uh, and, and it's as much as I'll, I'll go, oh, oh man, I, if this show gets picked up, uh, this, there's, there's, um, let's say like, I don't know, a writer that I worked with on it that, you know, I've, I've had relationships with people that I've written with that were contentious and not that often, but it was that thing of, oh, this show gets picked up. He's, uh, he's locked into it like I am and I'm going to have to work with him. And so it is like, yeah, but that's a pretty awesome problem to have to, to work be- out your problems with somebody for the sake of having your own show. On television. Yeah. So it's like, as much as that annoys you, it's, it's a good problem to have. Like, there are, I mean, feel like I feel so, so lucky and so much gratitude for being able to do what I do. And I know everyone I associate with who does what I do, do does the same, feels the same way because it's, we know so many people that have, you know, what you call real problems. Right. And not that you should discount your own problems because you blah, blah, blah. It's, it's annoying where someone's like, oh, well, don't worry about me. You know, we all have our certain things to, to fight through. But it is, you, it is a good way for me to keep perspective where it's just like, well, this is a, just to say that out loud. Well, this is a good problem to have. You know, you want to aim for good problems. <laughs> and, if, uh, and if an aspiring comedian performer comes up to you asking for advice, what's the first thing you tell them? I, oh, I tell them, do the things you think is funny. Don't, don't go out and look at an audience and try to pander. Go, oh, this is a, this is a black audience. I'm going to joke about being white. This is an old audience. I'm going to joke about, I'm going to talk about stuff that's not um, uh, 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 blue or dirty. You know, I mean, I, 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 I've said that before that, like, you know, when you're starting out, you see an older audience, and you're like, I better keep it clean. But if you throw a little bit of dirtiness in there, they love it because they grew up not being allowed to laugh at it. Some of them will get offended for sure, right. but like you, you it's my only point of saying that is you'd be surprised what people will like. So rather than try to be a strategist, just do the things that make you laugh. You know, the stuff that occurs to you that makes you laugh that you thought of, write it down and do that. You know, cause you, you never know. I'll forget about things I thought about in the middle of doing something I wrote down and just say it and that'll get a bigger, bigger laugh than anything kind of thing because you're just like, oh, well, that doesn't count. That's just something I think is funny. When you'd be surprised at, at at what people will enjoy once they see the world through your your own eyes, you know what I mean? You have to give them a chance. Yeah, absolutely. And and what are people looking for if not uh, a, a unique yet relatable experience for a comedian? You know, they want to be surprised. Well, thank you for thank you for giving me a chance. Absolutely. I really, <laughs> sure, man. I really appreciate this. No, not at all. Thanks for interviewing me, man. Oh, thanks, man. You got it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.